Hi, everyone. I am delighted to join the National Gallery of Art in celebrating the one and only Alma Thomas. Now, I never met Alma. She was making her art here in D.C. while I was still growing up halfway around the country. But nonetheless, it always felt like Alma knew me. And at its best, I think art doesn't just speak to curators or art historians. It speaks to our hearts. It makes our spirits sing. Sometimes that's a low bellow, and other times it's a joyful melody. For me, that's what it's like to experience Alma's art. You don't simply view it, you feel it. At first sight, it bursts into your lungs. Each time you revisit it, she fills you up even further, stretching down through your feet deep into the earth until she connects you with the soil and the roots that bind us all together. And that's what resurrection feels like to me. A little girl from the south side of Chicago who somehow ended up making a home in the White House. So I wanted to share that feeling with the world. I wanted to make sure that other little black girls growing up would see that they belonged in the people's house too. And it's why when we were redesigning the old family dining room, preparing to open it up to the public for the first time in history, we acquired Resurrection, making it the first piece by a black woman added to the White House's permanent collection. We placed the painting directly in visitors' line of sight, across from the doorway, and centered right between a pair of towering windows so that its warmth would greet you the moment you stepped into the room. Now, back when she was teaching public school, I doubt Alma would ever have imagined a painting of hers on display in the White House. And I'm not sure she would have expected a symposium at the National Gallery of Art dedicated to her work either. But that's part of what we're celebrating, isn't it? Not someone who sought to burnish her own reputation, but someone who always saw the beauty that surrounded her and wasn't satisfied until she'd done her part to bring that beauty to others. So thank you all for doing your part to share that beauty with even more people. Have a great symposium. Thank you, Mrs. Obama, for your kind welcome and introduction and for sharing your appreciation of Alma Thomas with us. In your enthusiasm for gardening and your broad array of children's educational initiatives, and in your advocacy for the arts in general, and artists of color in particular, you have been a champion of Alma Thomas's legacy. You do us a great honor by being with us tonight, and we thank you. Thank you as well to our friends at the National Gallery who assembled these proceedings and to the other participants in Washington and online who will share their creativity, knowledge, and enthusiasm over the next several days. If studying Alma Thomas for the last decade has taught me anything, it is that her art at its core is about forming community and connection. And here, by participating in this celebration and by coming together around her art, we all carry out her legacy. So thank you to the participants and organizers, and thank you to everyone out there in the ether for joining us tonight and welcome. Uh, my name is Seth Feeman, and with my collaborator, Jonathan Frederick Walls, who joins me here, 
We co-curated the exhibition, Alma W. Thomas, Everything is Beautiful. The exhibition is currently on view at my home institution, the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia, for another week and a half. So you've got time, come down and visit us. It will then travel to the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., opening October 30th, and will then travel to the Frist Museum in Nashville before closing at the Columbus Museum with Jonathan next summer. Tonight, Jonathan and I will give a virtual tour of the exhibition, and then we will welcome poet Ross Gay to present a reading of the poem he wrote on Alma Thomas. Ross's poem is inspired in part by a study Thomas made for her painting Resurrection, the final version of which Mrs. Obama acquired for the White House collection in 2014. And the poem is published as an introduction to the catalog for our exhibition. At any point along the way tonight, we invite you to ask questions or make comments in the chat. At the end of Ross's reading, we will attempt to answer those questions. So the floor is open to you and we welcome your participation. So let's get to the exhibition. The show opens at the Chrysler with a partial restaging of Thomas's famous and in many ways legendary 1972 exhibition at the Whitney. I think if people know just one thing about Alma Thomas, it tends to be that she was the first African-American artist to have a solo show at the Whitney, the first African-American woman artist to have a solo show at the Whitney when she was 81 years old. This is true, and it was a momentous occasion featuring several of Thomas's most accomplished works, but it also had a history that we felt needed more unpacking. And this introductory section at once celebrates Thomas's achievement while recognizing the labors of several artists and activists who made it possible. For months preceding the opening, protesters demonstrated in front of the Whitney decrying the lack of racial diversity on staff, in exhibitions, and in the collection. Whitney administrators agreed to one of the protesters' demands to mount a series of solo exhibitions by African-American artists, and Thomas was the first woman in this series. Thomas arrived to the opening in her fabulous custom-made gown reproduced here for the exhibition by Dr. Elka Stevens of Howard University. And she commanded respect and admiration in the gallery where the show was installed. Thomas had actually worn the gown the previous year at a major exhibition curated by Professor David Driscoll for the Fisk University Art Gallery in Nashville. And although it is little known, Driscoll had given the idea of an Alma Thomas exhibition to the Whitney curators when they were looking for artists to highlight. That important detail, in essence, that the idea of an Alma Thomas exhibition was handed to the Whitney by Professor David Driscoll had not been widely acknowledged until this exhibition. As I say, the works in the Whitney show were some of Thomas's most accomplished and collectively they demonstrated her keen interest in motion, mobility and atmospheric effects. Like many Americans, Thomas followed NASA's lunar and Mars missions with rapt attention, thrilled by space travel and the first up close impressions of new worlds. In 1971, Mariner 9 began circling Mars and this was a spacecraft that was designed to map the planet's surface, but images were delayed because there was an enormous dust storm that engulfed large parts of the planet for more than two months. NASA was dismayed, but Thomas, true to form, was thrilled by the idea. 
Uh, always attentive to the ways light bends, reflects, and refracts color, she found new inspiration in how dust both obscured and revealed the red planet as seen here. And you're looking left to right at Mars reflection from the Central Intelligence Agency's collection, cumulus at center from SFMOMA, and Mars dust from the Whitney collection. Welcome everyone. Um, my task is to walk you through several of the sections as well. And this vignette opened what we consider to be an investigation into Alan Thomas's studio practice. One of our goals in the exhibition was really to make her a much rounder um, character in the imagination of folks who visit the exhibition. As Seth mentioned, most uh, folks, if they know something, they know that she exhibited at the Whitney. They might know about the painting in the White House. They might know she was the first fine arts graduate from Howard University. But those facts kind of are shorthand for a much richer and much more complex personage. And we wanted to kind of present materials from her everyday life and living environment that we felt would help visitors understand her in maybe other ways um, and ways that are very familiar from our own household environments. Um, here we have a painting at top left by Jacob Kanan that she owned. It was from her personal collection. We have photographs where she is, um, her, her, the walls of her living spaces show the portrait by Laura Wheeler Waring and the, her own painting, Lunar Surface from American University Museum. Um, Alka Stevens also graciously recreated uh, her day dress in which she appears in several iconic photographs. And uh, there's other aspects of her very varied career um, on view here as well, including sculpture and marionettes. Next slide, please. In this section, we also wanted to unpack the fact that Thomas's kind of best known work from 1966 forward actually came from somewhere. Uh, she didn't really just sort of drop out of the sky fully formed. Um, she actually worked really hard and she like basically developed over several decades. Um, this slide is amazing in that it shows this very wide sweep of material um, at far left, we have a painting that's likely from her student days at Howard in the 1920s. Um, and then a series of works um, that start chronologically from earliest to latest. And you can see where she's um, really working in a very kind of illusionistic realism at the beginning. And then she begins eventually to break forms down into basic shapes. Um, and then um, by the end, she's she's working in this kind of non-objective mode where it's really all about painting and paint and what it can do. Um, also in this slide, you can see at the bottom how she basically just reiterated ideas over and over and over again. And that's how she was able from just making slight variations each time 
to end up in a completely different kind of mark making space. And that's how she innovated her incredibly rich and complex uh, paintings on canvas based on often on these uh, smaller watercolor studies. Next slide for Seth. Thanks, Jonathan. So the studio section that Jonathan just described in our exhibition opens onto the garden section, which we did because this is very much like Thomas's home studio, which opened onto her own backyard garden. Uh, Thomas Garden was a site where she um, offered space for respite, relaxation, and entertaining. Uh, and Thomas used the visual qualities of and emotional attachments to her garden as a constant source of inspiration for her work. As you can see in the diverse array of abstractions we installed along this wall, and this was important to us, we really wanted to highlight her stylistic variation, um, even while focusing on similar garden or nature-related themes. Thomas's feelings about the natural world and its constant renewal also, also often drew her to consider the past and its relationship to the present and to the future. For example, the painting on the far left, Babbling Brook and Whistling Poplar Trees Symphony from 1976, draws on her childhood memories of lying under a poplar tree and listening to the sounds of the wind passing through it. Uh, and I'll read you a quote from her. She said, I would wade in the brook and when it rained, you could hear music. I would fall on the grass and look at the poplar trees and the lovely yellow leaves would whistle. When you leave the garden section, you enter into another section called the public sphere, where we explore Thomas's political and her social commitments. It opens with one of the sketches that Thomas made about her experience participating in the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom with her friend, the opera singer, Madame Lillian Avanti. Uh, Thomas also had donated work to a fundraiser at Martha Jackson Gallery in New York for the Congress of Racial Equality, a group that was instrumental to organizing the March on Washington, as well as many other civil rights activities. While many African-American artists around this time were exploring black consciousness in their work, this was one of only a few instances where Thomas addressed political or social themes overtly. More often, her politics were centered on community improvement and engagement uh, particularly through church activity and teaching. Uh, Thomas's commitments were profound and absorbed a great deal of her energy and attention. Uh, in fact, at one point, she went on the record saying, people always cite me as being what she called a color painter or a color for my color paintings, but I would much rather be remembered for helping lay the foundation for children's lives. So her commitment to community was profound. One way that uh, this came through is in the work that she made in relationship to her church activities or her faith more broadly. And you'll learn about that much more tomorrow when Dr. Melanie Harvey of Howard University talks about Thomas's involvement in St. Luke's Episcopal Church. For now, I'll just simply highlight the range of work Thomas made related to her faith, which was bound up with her lifelong commitment to community service. So here you see on the left, they laid him in the tomb from around 1958 and St. Cecilia at the organ from 1962, which was one of a series that she made on women saints that also included images of St. Catherine and St. Teresa. 
On the right, you see something a little bit different. These are non-objective paintings from the mid-1960s that Thomas variously titled Transcendence or Transcendental and Genesis, uh, in which Thomas at once explores the color theories she learned from her deep art historical studies, as well as mystical themes like the creation of the earth or possibly the covenant after Noah's flood. For us, this section highlights how much Thomas's religious faith was inseparable from her faith in art as an uplifting and transformative force. Another one of the goals of the exhibition was to really foreground work, creative activity before her retirement from uh, formal classroom teaching in 1960. And as Seth alludes, um, her activities in teaching and working with children were very much um, interconnected. One uh, aspect of her life that we can really uh, expound upon because of the collections at the Columbus Museum is related to her studies at Columbia University in the 1930s, where she um, eventually obtained a master's degree in arts edu education. Um, it's little known probably, but her thesis was actually on how she would use marionettes in the classroom as a correlative activity. She basically, over the course of the academic year, used the creation and research and um, kind of the actual production of the uh, play Alice in Wonderland with puppets as a way to kind of almost sneakily get students to get excited about literature, get excited about um, working with fabric, learning about theater history, studying color theory. Um, and so through this uh, sort of overarching activity, she was able to draw on other disciplines and really demonstrate how all of these things could relate together and come together at the end of the school year in something that the, the children themselves were incredibly proud of, the accomplishments that they had made. Next slide, please. The marionettes and these works on the screen are part of a section called The Stage. Um, Thomas was very interested in theater and participated in one way or the other, either actively behind the scenes or as a, a viewer um, throughout her life. And I really wanted to highlight the watercolor in the center here um, because it relates to the marionettes. Um, in 1934, she finished her master's degree on that correlative activity in the classroom, but she wasn't finished with string puppets. The following summer in 1935, she studied with really the man who's considered the father of puppet modernism in the United States. His name is Tony Sark. He's little known today, um, unless you're in the puppet or theater world. But what might surprise you is that in the uh, 
Macy's department store uh, approached him at a certain point and asked him to be the, the one to develop um, the large inflated balloons that we now associate very closely with the parade. So this watercolor is called Macy's Parade. In it, she's not only exploring color, mark making, what watercolor can do, but it's an oblique homage to um, a favored teacher from her past. The stage um, segues into another section called The Field, which is rather broad and is a play in our minds on both uh, color field painting, but also the very um, interconnected field of actors that Thomas was a part of. Um, what really struck us as we were putting the show together is just how many people she knew and how she was able to sort of use those relationships to accomplish even more in her art career and her teaching career. Um, this is an amazing painting by Washington artist John Robinson that is a snapshot of the interior of the Barnett Aiden Gallery. This was the first Black-owned gallery in Washington, the second in the entire country, and it was founded in 1943 by James Herring, Alonzo Aiden, and Alma Thomas. She was there at the beginning, and she stuck with it all the way through the 60s until it closed. It was really about supporting local artists, but also making beauty and art available to everyone. They really specialized in small to medium-sized works that were affordable because they felt that everyone should live with art. And this was just yet another way that Alma was connected to the arts scene and the wider community in Washington, D.C. through this gallery. So in this group, which is part of the field section, you see Thomas's work at center with paintings by Lois Maylou Jones on the left and Celine Tabari on the right. In the 1940s, Thomas became involved in what was called the Little Paris Studio, which was a group organized by Jones, uh, then a Howard University art professor, and Tabari. Uh, Jones and Tabari became friends while Jones was on sabbatical in France, but they effectively got stuck in the United States during World War II and launched uh, what was called the Little Paris Studio, where they offered workspace and live models and constructive criticism, largely to African-American painters, which were based on the rigid academic tradition of the Académie Julienne. In 1952, however, Thomas broke from the group and enrolled at American University to learn what she uh, liked to call creative painting. Uh, she sort of dismissed the group's emphasis on direct observation and naturalistic images, saying at one point, and I'll quote her again here, because uh, I love this quote, uh, I leave behind me all those artists who sit out in the sun to paint. I leave them back in the horse and buggy times when everything moved slowly. I get on with the new. At American, however, where Thomas studied from 1952 to 1957, the new was informed very much by the old. Uh, the curriculum was transformed when the Phillips collection acquired the Paul Cezanne painting seen on the left in 1955. 
Thomas's professors like Robert Franklin, Franklin Gates came under the painting's sway, as you can see in his painting at center, which depicts an Appalachian scene, but as you can tell, it directly quotes from Cezanne's palette, as well as his handling of paint. Uh, Thomas herself took inspiration from the canvas, uh, Cezanne's canvas. She commented, uh, and I'll quote you here again, Cezanne's unfinished painting of a landscape at the Phillips collection gave me the idea of using color to structure a painting. And you can see how she began applying these ideas of using color rather than form to structure her own work on the right with her painting, Trip Through the Alps. As for many Washingtonians, the Phillips, it's worth mentioning, was an important site for Thomas, uh, where she would gather with other artists and share ideas about modern art and collaborate and connect. Speaking of connection, another amazing connection that Alma Thomas maintained throughout her adult life was a friendship that changed um, in terms of the power dynamic over the years that they knew each other with uh, scholar, curator, art historian, amazing artist, David Driscoll. He arrived in Washington in the early 1950s and soon thereafter must have met Alma Thomas through activities at the Howard University Art Gallery as well as Barnett Aiden Gallery. I wanted to really show this slide for several reasons, one of which being I think it really sort of informs the idea that we have that these conversations and um, understandings about visual innovations were really conversations that were happening among the artists in Washington. They weren't flowing only one direction, but they were a, a matter of discussion and I think that you can really get a sense of that here. Um, what's maybe little known as well is that David Driscoll received his master's degree from Catholic University and Kenneth Noland also taught there. So yet another nexus where lots of um, players on the scene that Alma Thomas knew um, learned and connected together. I also wanted to show this slide because it to me really resonates with the idea that both Thomas and Driscoll were transplants to the Washington DC area. And I think it's an amazing example of how Thomas used her Southern roots. She may not have gone very often back to Georgia, but she used her experience as a Southerner to connect with other in the Washington DC area in the art scene, David Driscoll, uh, was also born in Georgia, but grew up in North Carolina. Uh, ben Summerford, one of her teachers at American University, was from Montgomery, Alabama. And Sam Gilliam, for example, was from Louisville, Kentucky. So the fact that she was a Southerner, some might have seen as sort of something that would hold her back. But in fact, in true Alma Thomas fashion, she turned it into a positive and used it to advance her career and her teaching. Next slide, please. One of the goals of the exhibition um, was really in response to previous uh, exhibitions and catalogs, which 
almost to a show um, often in the catalog itself compare on the page Alma Thomas's work with folks that she was working alongside like Morris Lewis, Gene Davis, and Kenneth Noland. We felt it was incredibly important, not just to illustrate that in the catalog, but to bring these works actually together so that their similarities and differences can be really experienced in actual time and space. Um, I also think that this helps us understand, again, those visual conversations that were happening. Um, and that really, you know, often it's thought that Thomas sort of sat at the feet of, of these color field painters, but she knew them actually before they became famous because they were exhibiting at, at Barnett Aiden Gallery. Um, uh, there's a wonderful story that Sam Gilliam tells about um, uh, Kenneth Noland opening in Washington after he had already sort of moved to New York and become incredibly famous. And Alma Thomas arrives at the opening and Kenneth Nolan stops talking to everyone in the receiving line to make a beeline directly to Almas. And Sam Gilliam's kind of like, what's going on? I don't understand. And someone explains it's because of Barnett Aiden and the sort of efforts of that gallery in the early stages of the career of these artists that really made a difference um, for them and their art. At the back, um, just really briefly, Seth, at the back, um, I just wanted to highlight those two canvases. Um, we know of others that we weren't able to borrow specifically for the show, but those two canvases also allude to the fact that Thomas, during her lifetime, she experienced um, what it was like to have your work shown in an international context. She was one of the first artists um, that participated in the nascent Art in Embassies uh, project that John F. Kennedy as president had started. And so the Phillips collection painting there on the left at the back on the blue wall, um, for example, we know traveled to Rome uh, during Thomas's lifetime. So what astounded us during the research for the exhibition is just how the, her art really moved around a lot more than just in Washington, D.C. itself, but eventually made it to every continent uh, except Antarctica and Australia. You want to tackle this one, Jonathan? This large painting in the middle is a triptych that we just had so much um, fun imagining her working on this physically in her kitchen studio because it's 13 feet wide, which is much, much bigger than the actual space available in the small area she had designated uh, between her kitchen and her garden as where she worked. Um, it really became the touchstone for us during the project because it just kind of encapsulates so many different issues that we came across and really wanted to talk about in the exhibition itself. 
aesthetics and art history. She's really digesting so much of what she's seen recently and in the past at the Phillips collection in this painting. It references gardening because it's called Red Azalea's Singing and Dancing Rock and Roll Music. Um, so it also speaks to music, which is a large theme that she engages throughout her uh, late career. It engages performance in the sense of dancing. Um, there's an aspect of nature to it, of course. And really, this is the moment in the 70s where self-actualization is really becoming a popularized term. And it, it, it just demonstrates at such a late moment in her life. This is created in 1976, just two years before she passes away. And she is pushing herself to the nth degree to accomplish what would become her magnum opus, this 13 foot wide, uh, amazing triptych. The show concludes with these two paintings, uh, both made in the last two years of Thomas's life, like Red Azalea's. Uh, they clearly demonstrate how Thomas continued to create and invent even in her final years. Uh, and quite frankly, that alone makes them very inspiring uh, but they do something more, which was really important to me and Jonathan. Uh, both works were given to Thomas's friends. Uh, the mostly pink work on the right was given to Ruth Canaan in return for a pot of amaryllis, and the painting on the left belonged to Professor David Driscoll. Uh, the paintings therefore conclude the show by standing in for one of the core themes of the entire project, this idea that that if everything is beautiful, as the show's title claims, it's only because the search for beauty brings people together, creating relationships and creating community. Uh, as evidenced by this celebration and symposium, the project is already beginning to achieve this goal by bringing people together. Uh, it also allows us to realize the project's second goal by telling a richer and more complex story about Thomas's life which we hope, uh, we sincerely hope, will encourage more perspectives, more voices, and more interest in Thomas and her orbit. Um, this began to happen through the production of the film Miss Alma Thomas, A Life in Color. You can see an image of that on the left, which debuted with the opening of the exhibition and will be seen throughout its tour. It's also really taken shape through the exhibition catalog, which you can see an image of on the right. Uh, the catalog features contributions by almost 20 different writers who share diverse perspectives from different disciplines on the art, uh, the artist and her life. Um, without a doubt, key among them is the contribution by Ross Gay. And so it is really a great honor at this point after walking you through the show with Jonathan, thank you, Jonathan, uh, to welcome Ross Gay to the presentation um, who I will stop sharing my screen. And Ross, if you can share your work, it is as always such a delight to welcome you. Thank you so much, Seth and Jonathan. It's such a pleasure to be with you all and to be uh, a part of this, um, this conversation and the celebration. Um, I'm just gonna read this poem that is, and I'm reading from um, the catalog. And I'm gonna read this poem that comes from, you know, just sort of a kind of, study of the work and some of some of the biography and from conversations so it's kind of a beautiful and moving to me that actually some of this work comes from conversations that John, jonathan and seth and i had um, but it also comes from other conversations and 
it's called Study for Resurrection. And that's, um, it's a study. And, you know, looking at some of those in one of those, I mean, the show looks incredible. That whole slide uh, presentation is beautiful. And those, those, um, I love practice. I'm so taken with practice. And those images of the ways that the work came to be, always the work coming to be, is so moving to me. So that in a way that the, the painting I'm sort of talking about is actually a study, it's a practice. Um, and it's study for resurrection. And there's like a little dedication, and always with and for beloveds. Azaleas in your eyes. Hollyhocks in your eyes, iris, tulips, jonquils, and crocuses in your eyes, zinnias lush as the body's deepest ravines trod and caressed and ladled through by swallowtails in your eyes. Hummingbird come to say, hello, little brilliance, little sweet-toothed timpani heart flickering in your eyes, and sunflowers bending their long necks down their holy geometry studied by bees in your eyes to study you, pollen lit like that, dragged by light like that, into light like that, the nimble honey dust lusters in your eyes. I will never not grow sunflowers again, God willing. Didn't even mention finch or speckled beetle, the gold. Didn't even mention the broad eye of the sunflower saying, eat this here, saying, now you're a goldfinch. Now you're a beetle with a yellow polka dot raincoat. Now a gold satchel bee crawling through me on your knees. Supplicant to what? What reverie, what swoon, what arboreal tune, limbed wing thing you, the vascular script in, or do I mean of? your backlit wings winging you. Look, look, the languorous gills on the okra flower, this is an eyelid. You might try running one solitary petal along your neck or cheek behind your ear. There is no softer thing on this planet unfurling in the caress. You might hear the centuries, the hands, the low, low moan, or enter the flower's clerestory. The stamen, the steeple, pistol lit and mossy with pollen in the gloaming. Your hands in the earth yet? Your hands the earth? Looking out the window, she saw the thousand, thousand tiny green boats of the holly tree and the light in their seams, the shivering light in the seams of the hurt. She saw the boats. How close can you bring it to you? the light, the despite, field of crepe myrtle, magnolia bloom, bigger than your two good hands, you better. The peonies start as the sealed eyes of dinosaurs and as prayer to the fragrance of their unfurling, ants chew the sweet glue free. A liar will tell you the peonies don't need the ants. Please don't believe them. A liar will tell you don't need. Don't believe them. There are babies right now running through the toppled lavender ones, the pinkish ones too. Their little bare feet become maps to our afterlives, studies of our afterlives. We are the babies too. 
need and need and need mapping our afterlives or the shadows on the elephant skin of the beach looking with their eyes at my looking. The canopy is telling secrets up there, the light through the leaves, despite. You know what I'm saying? Can I tell you the Oriole kept visiting that day first perched on the chain link as I worked on something I've forgotten, tipping his head at me. Then as I was looking out a window, minding my own business, in the direction of some raggedy bushes, the other side of the house, sipping coffee, he burst into the thicket, prying his orange flight through the seams into my sight, my study, said with his ashen head and body ablaze, come on now, what are you working on? Said, look at the tithonia giggling in the wind and the castor bean waving, hello, hello, with all their 19 hands, that blushy violet stalk and pretty earrings a dangle. Like my cousin I'd never seen said on the way to the reunion, pulling up at a stoplight with his wife, smiling in his truck next to us in a minivan, three generations in one vessel, all the generations in all our vessels. The younger you are, the more generations you vessel. Not a contest, just a fact. Looking at my dad, seeing something, what was it that I likewise see in you? Shouting out the window, the light through the holly tree. We're kin. Can I tell you, I'd never seen my dad smile like that. My dad, who when I was a child, recounting a dream, maybe that one where our, Toyo our Toyota Corolla turned into a daisy and the bumblebee starts buzzing our way. He told me he never dreamt. I'm remembering this small and discreet sorrow this morning hand in hand with the kin, with the glee, out the window of a rental van at a stoplight in Detroit. I mean, good Lord, you are my cousin. A formal element sometimes bursts into metaphor. Can I tell you the woman who fled quickly, took, in a cutting, took a cutting of their jasmine plant, took a cutting of their fig trees, took a cutting of their red rambling rose spring song, stuck it in some wet soil from home, the trillion trillion bodies we sometimes call dirt, we sometimes call oh thank you, and brought them where she ran to and walked the potted baby daily. The baby potted in oh thank you, in a stroller with one wheel that snagged and whined like a bird from home to where the sun first landed in the square, warming the stones, singing to the little green baby. You think I'm telling stories? It's daily like this. It's just what we do. This despite and despite, it's just what we do this epigenetic proclivity toward the utopic, if that's the right word, this Alma, out the window, the light through the holly tree, the seams in, the seams of, she called it study for resurrection. She called it wind and crepe myrtle concerto. She called it cherry blossom symphony. Those are the right words. Mine is a sycamore. No, please, let me correct that, will you? I am the sycamores, have always been. The painting actually was untitled, but it was Study for Resurrection. The mottled body stretching above and beneath me, the leaves 
big as kites, its encyclopedia pages, the light as the seams. This Alma witness is a kind of making. I am the black walnuts, the stand of beeches, the dandelions and hydrangeas and sweet potatoes and okras. I am the long beans and the marigolds and the fish peppers and the burdocks and the comfries and the hibiscuses. Take some seeds with you, take some cuttings, take some oh thank you. You might call it forsythia glow. You might call it study for resurrection. Epistles from the centuries delivered every breath. If we read them, okra seed, black peanut, wasp perusing the collards, you might see it, you might call it, sometimes we forget. Earthworm tunneling hibiscus, skirts coddling the wind, softest thing on this planet, your eyelid requires witness sometimes. We requires witness sometimes. We forget such witness makes a world. I mean the earth, a remaking, a remaking into the earth. Such witness, I am saying, witnesses our possible lives into being. And sometimes we forget the oh, thank you. We are made of light in the holly tree as the scenes study for resurrection. Sometimes we forget and are reminded the dahlia's gaudy frock and night blooming jasmine tiptoeing in pajamas and socks into the dream. Light the seams of the we. She witnessed us a garden. Light as the seams she put the gardens in our eyes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ross. I every time every time we are on screen together and you read, I I hate to interrupt at the end and uh, and break that moment of the poem because it's so beautiful. But uh, thank you, thank, thank you. you, my pleasure. Thank you. So I I would like to for the next several minutes invite our uh, participants uh, who are out there in the ether to. Um, ask any questions they would like in the chat. We're sort of monitoring that uh, along the way. And um, there's a couple of questions that have kind of come up so far that I'm happy, happy to ask, or I might actually try to leverage them a little bit to encourage a conversation between poets and art historians uh, as much as possible. So um, two things I saw sort of flash by um, already. Um, one of them was a question that is a little bit about optimism, uh, which seems the perfect one to start us off. And it was a question along the lines, I'm sorry, it's far back now in, in the thread, but it was something to the effect of um, a question about how Thomas was able to um, go about her community commitments uh, at a time of racial tension, of segregation, of conflict, how she was able to um, remain committed and remain focused on beauty while there were terrible things going on in the world around her. And I'm wondering, uh, Ross, I know this is a question that you get asked all the time, and I'm wondering if you can, can hazard a, a way into that question, and then maybe Jonathan and I could talk about some of the history of, of Thomas. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, um, um, 
I think about, and I think about, you know, cause so much of what I, when I, I was sort of thinking about with Alma Thomas's work is the garden and the garden is so prominent and also prominent as a feature of a place where she invited people to kind of spend time and learn about the earth and the flowers and all this beauty to have a chance to sort of reside in this, um, in this kind of like profound, um, beauty, which teaches us many things, among which is that, you know, the, just the sort of, the metaphors of the garden are things like, um, you know, the cycles, like things like, um, you know, I don't know what you call it, like continuation in a certain kind of way. You know, like if you're a gardener, you know about propagation. You know about how to take a cutting from something and you give it to someone else and you say, take this where you're going and put it in the ground, you know, or, or you know that, um, you know that a seed carries the material, the genetic material of not only what is growing before you, but more than you could ever sort of contemplate growing in the future. So there is some sort of, when I think of, and these paintings to me hold that sort of spirit. They hold that sort of like luminous, um, again, like, you know, I, I am not at all, um, I'm very much taken with the, the light that comes through the sort of density of color, you know, and so that the, the color is something, but there's this light always kind of penetrating or, or sneaking through the color, you know, both of which are remarkable and beautiful, but that is a kind of metaphor for, or something, or something to contemplate in terms of um, what, what kind of continues to come through and go on, you know, there's something about that. And, you know, I just think, I just think the paintings sort of have that spirit of, um, I mean, I think optimism, optimism is an interesting word and it's actually not a word that I, that I dally with that much. Um, but, but the word of something like being able to look, being able to see, you know, you don't have to be optimistic to look at a plant and know that that plant will likely make seeds and those seeds will likely be able to do something. You're just like looking at facts, you know, I'll stop there. Here it don't, please don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, um, what I hearing Ross talk and thinking about sort of the optimism that's built into nature and how she sort of adopts that in a certain sense, right? Like it could, when flowers die back and a, a perennial dies back in the fall, you know, but nature just, constantly is like renewing itself and so I think she really brings that to her own work and the aliveness of them like they can be kind of static but once you engage like there's this kind of optimistic aliveness to them that I think is very closely related to nature yeah I think I think it was also in in what she did. And so one of the things that we explore in the exhibition on some level is um, Thomas's upbringing uh, and her sort of formative education in Georgia and through her family about persevering in the face of challenges and sort of not letting them get in her way. And she, she had the support to be able to do that comfortably in her family. Um, but it's something that she also taught her students to do. So she had I love talking about this. She had this one, um, one of her lessons that she de designed for her students was called Know Your City. And she would ask her students, uh, African-American students in segregated school to go to places throughout the city that were ostensibly integrated. They might've been federal uh, locations at the time. So 
Um, uh, presumably they were, they were, uh, there was access, but that doesn't mean that there was comfort. And uh, she would have her students go and they would look at art or other cultural objects and then come back to the classroom and report about their experiences. And so she was asking them to get uncomfortable, which is something it's, it's a little hard to imagine now, uh, but she was asking her students to do something, really leave the safety of their neighborhood um, because she did. Uh, she said things like, when I was in Georgia, that was segregated. When I was in DC, that was segregated. And when I was in New York, that was segregated, but I didn't let it bother me. I just kept going. And she wanted to, she wanted to cultivate that in her students to deliberately use a garden metaphor. She wanted to grow that in them. Uh, and I think the, the garden, her garden itself played a role in that. You know, she would invite people to stay, see her garden. She would invite students from St. Luke's Church uh, to come over and hang out in the garden and show uh, the creative things that they had been making in her classes there. So there was a, it was a location for this feeling to kind of cultivate this feeling, I think. Yeah, the, a, a question uh, that came up along the way was, was about about color uh, in the work too. And I, I wonder if we could talk about that for a minute. Um, someone was asking specifically early on here about, about the reds um, in her work. And there's probably technical answers that we could give to that. Uh, the Lunder Conservation Studio at Smithsonian American Art Museum uh, did an enormous technical analysis of her work that we published in the catalog. So you can learn quite a bit about her materials and how she worked. Um, but uh, but we also know uh, there was another question along the way about where her understanding of color theory came from. And this was also learned. Um, this was something that she studied in, independently uh, by reading widely in color theory. She was really drawn to Bauhaus color theories and applying them to her paint. But importantly, uh, she, the way Jacob Kanan described this, who was a friend of hers and sometimes mentor and sometimes mentee, is that she would she would read color theory and then she would transpose them to moves, physical moves. And, um, and so she would basically look at the color wheel and say three steps up, two steps down, but she would, she would effectively transpose that into physical movements across her canvases, according to, according to Jacob Kanan. And I, I think you can see it uh, when you describe her paintings as choreographed, that's not exactly a metaphor. It feels sort of, tangible, sort of literal. And so all of that is a way of saying, uh, there's a lot to talk about with color, but I wonder, Ross, if you could talk a little bit about, about resurrection in particular, why that study appealed to you, why maybe if it's the color, maybe it's the form, maybe because it's a study, if you could just meditate on that for a moment. Yeah, um, gladly. The Again, that, that one slide that you showed that showed the kind of progress and the some of the, like, I forget how you put it, but you, um, I, can't, I can't remember if it was Jonathan or Seth who said it, but it was like, you know, that it just, this work comes out of practice, you know, like, that's how, that's how we make things, you know, we practice doing it. I mean, that's how you make things like Almatabas made things, you practice a lot. Um, and to me, I'm just profoundly interested in the artifacts that happen along the way of the thing that we tend to sort of like celebrate or see. I'm just interested in, in um, you know, the stuff that might just go away and you might forget, like, I, I tend to actually think that's more beautiful. <laughs> and when I'm thinking about this, um, this, this 
steady, steady for resurrection. I'm gonna hold it up. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, I can talk about like the the color itself, that there's a kind of gold ground itself, the marks all around, and then the, the kind of concentric or the, the shrinking bullseye kind of circle color is going around. But the things that I love about this is that it has the wear and tear of something that was not precious, but was something along the way of something else. So, you know, it's even talking about like, again, a kind of garden metaphor, or again, like, you know, just like a living metaphor. Like this is a thing in, on the way of the next thing, which is to me so beautiful. And that there's a tear in the page. <laughs> if you look really closely, there's staples, I That's think. I wondered, you, yeah. <laughs> it's it's an, like we haven't seen it in person, but it's amazing. Uh, I love it. And it looks like there's a fold or maybe a couple folds. Like this is a thing from which you can tell, you know, both the work was made, but also, she was learning how to make something else, you know, in the process of this. And, you know, that to me as a, you know, I'm a teacher too. I'm a teacher too. And so that whole life of hers as a teacher, I didn't, when you were talking about the Alice in Wonderland stuff, and of course I'm just like, oh, I got to do that, you know, like, cause I do have people make puppets, you know, but I'm like, that's brilliant. That's such good teaching. Like, and as a teacher, I'm so interested in the things that are the things along the way that we make along the way to like learning a thing. I'm interested in studies and practice. Um, and this is such a beautiful example of that, you know. Thanks, Ross. That, another question that maybe dovetails a little bit with this, maybe we could get into it a bit. Um, a couple questions have popped out about music uh, and the aural and how that, that works its way into, into the work. And, um, uh, the question is something about specifically how she how she connected to sound and music in her work. And maybe Jonathan, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the kind of connection that we found in the research. But but Ross, I, I would love it if you could also talk about how, you know, as a poet, uh, how you're thinking about audibility in your work. You know, I think the first time I heard you read the poem that we printed in the catalog, uh, the poem hit me in a way that it hadn't, it, it hit me pretty hard when we first read it. And Jonathan and I were like texting back and forth frantically, like we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. But then when we heard you read it, it, it hits in a totally different way. And so I wonder if you could, you could speak about that a little bit. I mean, one thing that I will say, and it was interesting to hear about the, um, the, um, one of the pieces you all talked about in the music, the rock and roll, um, um, <laughs> that that there is, you know, there's something there's something vocal about these pieces in a way, you know, and I don't know exactly how to say it, but there's something vocal. And there was some reason, I suspect, that even in the poem and the way that the poem was sort of came through me as I was looking very hard at this image, um, was that there's a lot of voices in this in this poem like there's the oriole who's like what are you looking at there's the um my my cousin who shouts out the window we're kin you know there's like the like all these plants and all this stuff is like is kind of beckoning through the poem and i feel like um one i think that's an interesting thing that i think 
was kind of invited by looking at this painting. Um, and whether or not that's a kind of aural thing, it is definitely a kind of vocal thing. There's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of, to me, like vocalization that's happening in here. And, you know, I might not have a much better way of saying it. I could, I could kind of go off and off, <laughs> but it'd take too long. But like even the sort of the image that I'm, that I'm studying and a lot of these images, like the way that those colors sort of move, you know, that the light moves through those colors, to me, that makes me, that makes me kind of hear things, you know, that makes me hear things. Yeah, it's, you know, the, it was pretty late in the game, you know, we've been working on this project for a really long time, and it was relatively late in the game that um, I first heard, I think Jonathan heard it well before me, um, audio recordings of Thomas speaking, uh, and uh, that was another moment where it really hits you because she had a very refined, very South Georgia draw uh, and uh, very elegant, but very unmistakably Southern. And of course she's Southern, you know, it's, it's in the archive, it's in the history. Anyone who's worked on her knows about her roots. Uh, but when you hear it, it plants her in that place. It's, it's unmistakably part of her and her work when the audio brings it, brings it to life. And I think, I think for me, it really also sort of indicates like, it just makes me think about like being in a place where other people speak, but they don't speak the way you do. And so there's this kind of difference that's happening and, and the accent sort of might seem even more remarkable in that sense. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to speak about music, um, in terms of formal music, um, she did not experience synesthesia, which is a kind of um, psychological event that happens where um, two senses kind of get confused. Um, sh she did not literally see colors and then hear sounds, but she was very attuned to that close connection. Um, and she, her mother played the violin. The Columbus Museum still has that violin in its collection. Um, we know that she took music lessons as a child. Um, music infuses her life. She grows up in the church. So, you know, sacred music is, is definitely like in the background. And that has a kind of poetry to it too, right? Like it's very, it's got meter and you know rhythm in those words that you repeat um throughout the liturgical year um like like theater is like very much um part of uh how she experiences music um uh someone uh well seth you reminded us that she's friends with the opera singer lillian avanti i mean that must have been amazing and we have this great newspaper um mention where thomas is actually attending one of the phillips collections very distinctive music concerts at the museum right so it's something she even seeks out um that she wants it to be such a part of her life one of the things that the digitization of the archival material of the Archive of American Art, um, I think revealed to me is like there was this 
uh, calendar slash daybook where she started just writing a bunch. Like, I think she was really thinking about her legacy and she started writing down like books that were important to her and quotations that had meant something to her throughout her life. And one other thing that she did was write, write down songs. Um, it wasn't only that list where songs come up though, because on other random pieces of paper, you see she writes herself like a, a note, like, oh, I have to buy this record. Like she must've been hearing it on the radio and she's like, oh, I have to go to the record store and, and buy this LP. Um, so um, I put in the chat, I recently, um, uh, for the Yale University Press blog, I wrote about um, her engagement with music and, we list in that some of the um, things that we know she listened to because she wrote them down. And Seth very um, kindly as, as part of that um, created a playlist on Spotify. So we hope that you'll check that out. Um, her tastes were incredibly varied. Um, not surprisingly, I think she had Catholic tastes in all of her varieties ex of experience. I think um, everything from, um, you know, literally rock and roll. We have this amazing quote from, I think it's Harold Hart, who is describing how she just wanted to stay up on everything. Like she had to know the newest moves, the newest songs. Like she wanted to know, like as a, you know, octogenarian, she wanted to know these things. Um, and, you know, there's classical music. Um, she titles her works often with um, terms from, you know, musical compositions. So symphony or sonata or even a madrigal is, is one. So let's not forget Watusi. Yes. Well, please, please. That's one of your specialties. Yeah, I just I love that. I love that painting because it's it's in the exhibition. Uh, it's in the collection of the Hirschhorn. Uh, and it's, a, it's an extraordinary painting for a lot of reasons. It's usually just described as a copy of a Matisse cutout. So she had seen Matisse cutouts at MoMA in, I believe, 1961. And then she made a, a copy of it where she changed the color. So again, with the color theory, she's thinking about different color relations. So she altered the colors, uh, rotated the painting, and she hung it on the wall in her home. And in fact, you can see photographs in the exhibition where the light, the famous light that comes through the holly tree and gives her the impression of dappled qualities that she's using to invent her, her paintings, uh, her mature paintings. Uh, she's seeing that light hit, hit, the, hit Watusi, which is on the wall. But of course, Watusi is, is a lot of things, but in 1963, more than anything else, it's a dance. It's a song and a dance that she knows and that she's learning because as Jonathan says, she's got to stay on top of everything. She's got to stay on top of the new. And not least of all, that was because she was connected to young people. She's connected to her students who, with whom she was planning dances and get togethers. Uh, and, that, and that sort of leads me to another question that came up in, in the um, thread before, which is about, uh, Thomas's students and their memories and how they show up in the exhibition. And maybe Ross, you could talk a little bit about your experience working with students too. I, I can't remember where I remember your interview where you talk about essays and you talk about the importance of trying and how that works into your teaching. 
but it's very much in line with Thomas's own own um, educational initiatives. Um, we do have a section in the exhibition where we've included examples of student work, so work that she made with her students, as well as work that many of her students went on to create in artistic careers of their own. Uh, and they included sculpture, uh, paintings by Jean Ferrar. Um, she, she, one of her students was George Faison, who was an Alvin Ailey choreographer. He choreographed The Wiz, among other things. So uh, her students go on to have these incredible careers. Um, uh, and we have tried where we could to connect with them uh, what's been interesting is that many of them, because it's a long time ago, have different memories of what happened in the classroom, and that's been really productive. So um, some students remember her covering up the windows with effectively butcher block paper and asking the students to decorate it to create sort of like stained glass motifs, like you'd be making these kind of semi-translucent images on, on the surface. But some of the memories are that they were doing that to block out the neighborhood outside. And she would say things, some people remember saying things like, your future is in here, your future is in the classroom, focus on here, not on the street outside. Um, but others remember it as a way of kind of inviting them to consider the beyond, to kind of consider what goes on when you go through this, this space, this divider. Um, and so all of those seem really rich and productive. And, uh, we are continuing to try to gather those. Um, I don't know if either of you want to reflect on on your own teaching experiences or Thomas's teaching experiences. Well, I will, can you talk about Hunster because I really see a connection where you, you know that exercise of like imagine you your future career or imagine you know living in this place, and I I see that really related to you know, the window exercise sure. in a sense. So what, what Jonathan's referring to is, um, uh, so uh, Tom, Thomas's teacher when she was at Armstrong, uh, one of the first schools that she went to in Washington, and then she was really connected to him for a long time, was a man named Hunster, who was uh, an educator, an art educator, uh, and got her inspired about making art. But one of the things that he did in his curriculum was he invited students to make images, but in the sense of like imagining, you imagine your future, you imagine the way that you want. And so he would do things like uh, one of his classes, they would make drawings of gardens, but they would actually like draw the gardens through the process of their growth. So you would draw a garden and then you would plant the seeds by drawing the seeds in, and then you would, you would grow them by drawing them up and then you would harvest them by drawing the harvest. So it would become this multi-layered thing where the past was still visible in the present. You couldn't, couldn't really mask the whole thing. And it, it's like hard to imagine. This is really progressive mode of education, um, a really creative way of teaching that was unique to the black schools in Washington, DC at the time. Uh, and it, it gives me kind of hope that there's a lot to learn from these kind of educational models that we can reincorporate into what we do. I think there's probably a lot of teachers on the line that are saying like, we do do this, we do do this, and we're already doing this. But I think that there's really inspiring things from those. You can see them at play in, in Thomas's work. Yeah, I, I'll just say like that, um, all the things. So so she was the teacher of the, of the choreographer for The Wiz, is that? 
That's yeah, a, George Faison. So he was in her classes at Shaw Junior High School. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's you know. her, her gallerist, uh, Harold Hart. Um, so Harold Hart goes on to be the first black director of Martha Jackson Gallery in New York. But in his oral history at the Archives of American Art, he describes when he was a little boy, he would mow her lawn for like a nickel. Like she would pay him to come mow the lawn and there was a family connection and there were friends. Yeah, she put him to work. Uh, and then he winds up representing her on really an international stage. It's a really incredible circle. There was a there was a, a way that um, you put it at the beginning, and there's something about that that um, so much of her work it was so clearly about um, making ways for people to gather. And, uh, yeah, you know, and the garden as a space to gather. Obviously, the work, the um, the the paintings as a, as a thing to gather, the classroom as a place where gathering yeah. happens. And the result yeah. of this this work that she's doing is actually that we get closer to one another. Yeah. That's that's like such at the core of her. You're you're so right. Like even like, you know, after she retires, she doesn't stop teaching. Um, she finds ways to bring students in the in her neighborhood together. Um, one thing she does is create what's called the Beauty Club at St. Luke's, um, which is kind of a after school or weekend activity group that, you know, she basically is bringing all of these kids together who, you know, might be occupying themselves in not such positive ways and really creating a community and all of them learning together. It's really, and I find that like also relates to her generosity. There's, there's just such a generosity to the work and to her as a person. Um, one thing that I've just been so struck by in the research and writing is over and over again in the archive, you find these stories where she's encouraged someone to keep doing what they're doing, or she's written a letter of recommendation for this artist to get into the watercolor society, or, you know, on and on all of these and, and the gratitude that these people have for her. And for her, it was probably just a regular everyday kind of thing that she, you know, personally took for granted, but it was those actions that made the difference, you know, in the other people's lives. And it, I feel this, just this generosity and, and encouragement from her work that really radiates um, something that she lived as well. I think that there, there was one comment that came up before, maybe um, keeping an eye on the time, maybe I'll make this the last question for, for today, but I hope that everyone listening now will continue participating over the course of the rest of the week. Uh, there's really so much going on. Um, one of the, it was really a comment before, but I'll try to make it into a question was um, somebody mentioned um, uh the difficulty, but the value of focusing on beauty now. They were commenting on the exhibition and why, uh, why it seems important uh, to focus on the complex and important concept of beauty during a time of global challenges. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, Jonathan and I have reasons for why we thought it was important to highlight beauty in Thomas's work and really Thomas's work effectively told us to focus on beauty because it's Thomas's effort. 
Um, but it's something that Ross, you you do so much in your work and is really effectively at its heart why Jonathan and I first approached you about, about writing was, it was kind of the garden and it was, it was kind of the delight, but it was, it was also the beauty part. And I'm wondering if Ross, you could just talk a little bit about that. And maybe Jonathan, you could talk about it as well. Um, why, why beauty now? Why beauty in this work? Why beauty in what we do? I mean, what I'll say is that, you know, the, the objective, the objective period, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, is to study what you love. <clears throat> That's the objective. <clears throat> and the objective so often, and, and what you love is, you know, very often that kind of overlaps with, or maybe is, um, might also be what you consider the beautiful, what is beautiful to you. Um, that's the objective, you know, and in a way that that practice that in the midst of things, you know, it's sort of like, it's always the midst of things. It's always the midst of things, you know, and, you know, you know, Alma Thomas, you know, like, um, it was always the midst of things, you know, and to be studying, um, to be committed to, um, um, not only um, not only the beautiful, but to to practice studying and amplifying, and in fact making the beautiful. Um, yeah, to me, feels like that's you know what you know that's what that's what we study. I mean, that's what, and there's a word for that too. And one of the words is survival. You know. Hmm. <clears throat> I really take your point about world making. I mean, I think that is such an important core value for her that, that by learning different skills, building community, like we can make this world and we can make it the way we want it to be. Um, and I think that comes across in her paintings too. Um, I think that's what gardening is. Like you get to decide what's in it and how it's arranged and whether you pick the flowers or leave them, you know, um, something about kind of taking what, like, I guess, taking the lemons that life gives us and like making something amazing out of them, not just lemonade, but like lemon chiffon pie and lemon bars and all of the amazing things that you can make from lemons. Um, I'm just amazed at her broad mindedness. Like she just, seems to know about so many things and is able to plug in and just the right um, kind of piece of knowledge when it's needed. Um, and if she doesn't know, she can draw on this amazing network that she has. Yeah, that's one of the, one of her lines is something, something to the effect of culture is sensitive, sensitivity to beauty. And um, for her, that means a variety of things, I think, but, but it, it, made it clear to us that sort of Ross, like you were, you were talking about optimism is like sort of a, another thing. I think that it helps in distinction because um, beauty for her doesn't never seem to be a complete effort. It was something that was always ongoing. It was a, it was a driving force. It was, it was a stimulus that kind of kept her moving in pursuit of um, it is 
utopian if you if you want in that in that it can't be attained it can't be realized it has to be constantly searched for has to be driven for towards and that seemed to us to be kind of what stitched all of her various endeavors together that it, it it's at once the garden it's once the classroom it's the dressmaking it's it's the marionettes because the beauty is kind of what's helping her navigate this path so it's it's the planting of the garden, but you don't really know as much control as you want over it. You, you don't always know what you're going to get. Uh, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be constantly changing. You can't seize it. And that seemed to be so, um, so valuable to, to keeping her going and keeping her pursuing and keeping her moving into, into the present day. I think, I think that's probably as good a place as any to go on to the next stage of of the events. Thank you for joining the fifth annual John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art. Alma W. Thomas, Everything is Beautiful. I am Kaywin Feldman, Director of the National Gallery of Art. It's not every day that I can share the virtual stage with former First Lady Michelle Obama, but this symposium has consistently brought together magical connections that speak to Thomas's impact on the local and national scale. As we've seen in this first session, the symposium includes a variety of live and pre-recorded content that engages aspects of Thomas's lifelong creative practice. We're so fortunate to have heard today from distinguished artists, Ross Gay and Elizabeth Alexander. I was so moved by Professor Gay's reading of Study for Resurrection and how he related Thomas's interests to his own. Earlier, the National Gallery premiered a video of Elizabeth Alexander, poet, educator, memoirist, scholar, cultural advocate, and president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation in conversation with Thelma Golden director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Dr. Alexander describes her experience as a fellow artist and educator growing up in DC and her exposure to Thomas's work. Ms. Golden traces her history with Thomas from undergraduate research to her role in securing resurrection for the White House collection to her hopes for the future of Thomas Studies. Please visit the National Gallery website or YouTube channel to learn more about their many connections to Thomas's life and work. The Wilmerding Symposium and Community Celebration are being held in collaboration with the Traveling Exhibition and American University's Feminist Art History Conference. Many thanks to Ying Chen Peng for her organization of AU's conference and her partnership. We invite you to participate in webinars on September 23rd and 26th and on-site activities on September 24th through 26th. More information can be found on almathomasdc.org. The Wilmerding programming is dedicated to exploring and expanding stories of American art. It is named for the Seraphim Professor of American Art Emeritus at Princeton University and the former curator, deputy director, 
trustee and board chairman of the National Gallery of Art, John Wilmerding. A grant from the Alice L. Walton Foundation made these events possible. I want to thank our symposium presenters for furthering our understanding of Thomas's legacy. And special thanks to former National Gallery colleagues, Seth Feeman and Jonathan Frederick Waltz, whose landmark exhibition inspired the Wilmerding Symposium and Community Celebration and the DC Citywide Celebration of Alma Thomas. Their virtual tour encouraged me and no doubt many of you to visit the Chrysler Museum of Art before the show opens at the Phillips Collection on October 30th. I also want to thank all the National Gallery staff who had a role in programming and producing this event, with special thanks to Ali Peel, our acting head of academic programs for her brilliant orchestration of the symposium. And now I'd like to conclude with a toast celebrating this national treasure on the 130th anniversary of her birth, which DC Mayor Muriel Bowser proclaimed Alma Thomas Day. I'd also like to extend best wishes to Thelma Golden, who shares Thomas's birthday. As we turn outward and prepare to part from one another, please compose a 10 word toast to Alma Thomas about how you will find beauty as we retake our place in the world. I welcome Seth Feeman, Ross Gay, and Jonathan Frederick Waltz to offer toasts after mine and our attendees to post theirs in the chat. My toast is, inspired by autumn drama, let us seek highs of joy and delight. I'm going to get this over with. <clears throat> when they go low, we go high. Right on, Viking. Should <laughs> <laughs> uh, I go? Okay, you witnessed us. You put the gardens in our eyes. This is something that Alma Thomas taught me through her archive over the years. She writes, love comes by looking. Here's to you, Mrs. Thomas. Mm. Thank you all so much for attending and please you, keep your eyes out for all of the other events and special happenings that will be taking place over the next couple of months. Thank you so much Ross for being here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad to be with you both. Take care. Thank you Ross. Thanks Jonathan.